Yep. Hey, Julian, how are you doing today? Doing great. And I'm so happy the weather's finally turning around in DC. We're getting a nice spring heat. You know, I actually even say summer heat. It's a great day to be on the lawn, the National Mall, or whatever green space you live by. And we have a lot of cherry blossoms out there, um, especially at the Tidal Basin. So it's beautiful. It really is. And it's also a beautiful time to get some good fly in the wall interviews in. This week, we had a very special guest. We got to interview Robert Doerr the current president of the American Enterprise Institute, an incredibly influential scholar, and we had plenty of brilliant conversations with him. Uh, before then, he, uh, Robert Doerr worked for Mayor Mike Bloomberg as the commissioner of New York City's Human Resources Administration, which oversees uh, the city's welfare and public assistance programs. And, you know, he's incredibly influential within, uh, I wouldn't say popular culture, but uh, the kind of public policy discussions happening in the world. He's testified in front of Congress. He's written op-eds for the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Hill, you name it. Um, why don't we give uh, them a little taste of what the kind of conversations we had this week? Yes. So we were able to talk with him about free speech and debates in Congress about entitlement spending. Yeah. Um, one point that I really enjoyed from the conversation was our conversations about what exactly the role of think tanks are in the American political system. Well, we all know what think tanks do. I think it was incredibly important for us to hear exactly through what mechanisms and levers the think tank institutions actually influence policy and to what to what extent are think tanks the idea producers of policy influenced by people and money. So without further ado, let's go straight into it. Well, welcome, Mr. Dorn. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm terrific. It's nice to be on the Georgetown campus. How are you, Julian? How are you doing? Doing well. Um, busyness is winding down a little. Easter break is here, so yeah, great weather. A relaxation now. <laughs> um, so we'll head straight into it. Why don't you give us a little introduction and about um, your work at AEI, and we'll go straight into the content. So I'm the president of the American Enterprise Institute, a place that has many Georgetown alumni and current students who participate in activities over there. So we, we do a lot with Georgetown, especially including with the McCord School. Um, it's a public policy think tank. We do foreign policy. We do domestic policy. We do economics. We do social, culture, constitutional studies. We have about 120 independent scholars who speak and write for themselves. We're nonpartisan. We have both Republicans and Democrats, although we are considered right of center and we focus on uh, uh, our commitments to free markets and free people and limited government and a strong American role in the world and economic opportunity for all through employment and earnings and um, benefits of work. Uh, I am a former social service administrator. I was the commissioner of social services in New York City for Mike Bloomberg and before that for George Pataki in New York. And I am a uh, poverty policy expert. I ran the poverty studies program at AI before I was became president four years ago, um, and I so I both administer a public policy think tank that does all this work and convenes and tries to be in the political debate both with daily participation and and op eds and commentary, but also with longer standing research. And then I have my own work in helping people move out of poverty through employment and making our safety net programs work more successfully at that. And I do both of those. And um, 
it's a, good to be at the Georgetown campus and engage with all of you. Well, thank you for being here. I think one question the Georgetown community has regarding the thinking think tank community is we're curious, how does think tanks and the information they produce go on to impact policy? Do, you, do legislators consult with you or is it more that you influence the marketplace ideas and public opinion, which then influence the legislator? It's a little bit of both. Uh, we do uh, certainly an awful lot of participating in the public debate through op-eds, through speeches, through campus appearances, through traveling around the country and through convenings. But we also have a very strong government relations team that engages in you know, deep and significant long-standing relationships with members of Congress of both parties. So we are often, I was on Capitol Hill twice last week. We had scholars who testified last week. We testify more than any other think tank before congressional committees. We have a good relationship with people in the State Department and the Defense Department, National Security Agency of both parties, regardless of which party is in power. And we have a good relationship with the Council of Economic Advisors. Mm -hmm. So um, in all those ways, we engage uh, both in, in public, it's well known, but then we also, our scholars have their own independent relationships with people that we help facilitate. We provide a platform for scholars to use and to get their ideas into the public debate. And our goal is to, is, to, is to move it in the direction that our scholars believe in. So we played a role, our scholars played a role in the formation of the Electoral College Reform Act, which passed at the end of the last session. We played a role in, we think, uh, defeating some aspects of the Build Back Better legislation that President Biden wanted to um, pass Congress, which didn't pass through Congress. We played a role in the plussing up of the National Defense Authorization Act, which led to a significant increase in defense spending. We play a big role in 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 talking about and, and analyzing and discussing the war in Ukraine. Um, and in all of those things, our scholars are not in it just for the fun of it. They're in it to have impact on public policy in, in the direction that they seek. Um, I should also say that we participate in the discussion through scholars like Rui Teixeira, who writes on politics, and he's a, more of a person of the left, but he had been writing about the ways in which the Democratic Party, in some of its cultural positions, were driving away working-class voters in both black and Hispanic and white communities. And that became something that people where he were previously weren't as comfortable with because it was going against their priors of making them uncomfortable. We offered him a place to work with us, and he's done great work for us. And and has had some really interesting findings. Like, for instance, um, if you ask Hispanic Americans, um, do they think the United States is the greatest country on earth? 75% of them say yes. If you ask progressive Democrats that, only 25% of them say yes. And if the progressive Democrats are driving the policy positions of the Democratic Party, and they have this disconnect with an important constituency group, that may lead to some people saying, well, maybe this isn't really where I want to be. And that's, that's an interesting discussion to have, and, and our scholar has led that discussion. So AEI represents um, a sort of free market, small government style of conservatism um, that you don't necessarily always see with Donald Trump. Um, so what do you think um, has happened to your brand of conservatism and its influence um, with uh, President Trump? And are you trying to um, sort of reintroduce it um, or revitalize it for the current um, public discussion? 
Well, it's alive and well, our view of public policy. <laughs> oh, yeah. It may not be alive and well with, in President Trump's mind, uh, but there is definitely a, a constituency in America, leaving aside the Republican Party, for free markets, free people, free trade. And, and we see that constituency play out in all kinds of ways. In Congress, with some of the legislation that's passed, we don't win every battle, but um, I'm not at all concerned about those fundamental principles still playing a role in the public debate. The conservative movement um, is a little bit divided uh, right now. And some of the tensions that President Trump has brought to, to um, further big discussion around immigration, you know, we're basically the free flow of labor is something we like, and we, we like to welcome new immigrants into the United States. He's raised some issues about the, the effect of illegal immigration and our commitment to the rule of law. Well, those are legitimate issues that we need to discuss and take into account. He has made a commitment on entitlements, never to cut any entitlement, never to cut any spending uh, in those ways. That is a little bit of conflict with at least my work that has shown that some of those commitments are more than we can afford and sometimes disincentivize the work incentive, which is very important in helping people move out of poverty. So there, I think that's a real debate and discussion. I'm not sure he's won that debate <laughs> among conservatives, um, but he certainly has, has tried. Um, and then on trade, you know, we're free traders. He's not. Um, we think overall free trade is, in, enhances the prosperity and economic well-being of Americans and people around the world. But we also acknowledge that China uh, was a bad actor and that we had that had to be addressed. He, in some respects, brought that more to the forefront than anybody before. That's a good thing. And then finally, you know, probably his number one applause line was that um, – we shouldn't engage in military uh, situations around the world that aren't satisfactorily concluded and uh, and certainly don't lead to uh, significant American casualties. Those are good points. Those are things that we, we should hurt, but they're not unusual in conservatism. There's a long history in all of these things. There's a long history of nationalism. There's a long history of um, uh, uh, lack of support for free trade. Uh, among conservatives in our history, Trump seems to have brought them up. Um, and then the last thing is, is that while we at AI have always sort of called them as we see them, issue by issue, and on all of these issues, our scholars tangled with and agreed with things that the Trump administration was trying to do. Um, we were, you know, very, our, our scholars by and large were very uh, uh, upset and disappointed in his behavior in the wake of the uh, 2020 election. And there, there was a lack of disrespect uh, for the rule of law, a lack of respect for the rule of law. Uh, there was uh, really atrocious behavior on January 6th and treatment of loyal people to Donald Trump. Uh, Vice President Pence, Attorney General Barr, these are people that were very loyal to him and worked hard for him and for his agenda, and he treated really terribly. And that and, and uh, his sort of failure to recognize the importance of a peaceful transfer of power are kind of unforgivable to scholars at AI, and we've made that clear. So, you know, um, we think the ideas will 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 be around, and these discussions will be around over time. Politicians come and go. <laughs> so, I'm curious about the ecosystem that AI exists in. Um, in my head, and this might not be accurate, so you know, the second I start to mischaracterize, stop me. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, obviously, you mentioned AI is committed to, um, you know, being a, a a place of public policy, but you do see AEI kind of existing more towards the center right, while I see an institution like Brookings existing more towards the center left. 
Uh, my, my question then is, um, and I'm asking about AEI here because we have you here, but this applies to think tanks where it's large. Mm-hmm. Um, how do uh, think tanks as nonprofits kind of maintain their kind of objectivity and neutrality where it kind of seems that, you know, think tanks run on these donations and supporters. And in my mind, I imagine many of the supporters of think tanks are donating to the think tank that, you know, probably produces their own or reproduces their own sort of ideas. So me as someone on the left, I probably am not donating to think tanks and all that kind of money, but, you know, I would probably donate to something like Brookings. And in my mind, I see that as an almost kind of echo chamber where it's Brookings produces X sort of research. So I give money there. And then that kind of seems to, you know, A, create this sort of polarity within the American people, but B, makes me question, you know, the kind of nature of the think tank system, the kind of objectivity that exists within it. So I'm curious how, as president of AEI, you handle that question and what kind of checks you have in place to deal with those kind of things. Well, we are, we are different in that we provide this complete independence of the scholars we hire to do the work they want to do. And not every think tank is exactly that way. Uh, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities very much hires analysts to push an agenda that the, the institution supports. So in some respects, does CAP, the Center on American Progress. Um, Brookings tries to have independent scholars in a way that we do, so we're not completely unique. Heritage has a position from the top. They have one voice, and they enforce a certain position. So one of the benefits of our model, which we've been able to preserve over many years, is that we provide our scholars independence. We hire them and let them do their work. And that, in my opinion, enhances their their objectivity. It makes them much more credible than somebody that is just towing the party line or expressing the view of the House as opposed to their own judgment. And we hire the best. Andrew Biggs, um, Mark Warshawski, Michael Strain, these are the leading people in their fields, irrespective of their political views or their favoritism for one party or the the other. So I think that helps. Um, And then finally, you know, the the fundraising situation, we raise about 75% of our fundraising comes from individuals Mm -hmm. who give us dollars that are unconnected to any outcome. They don't, we don't take... We don't do contracts. We don't take any government money. Urban Institute takes a lot of government money. So do other uh, think tanks. We don't take any government money. We don't do directed research. So the money that we give into is for general operation purposes, and we make no promises or commitments on what that will get them in terms of the specifics of the research. So um, we take a little money from corporations. Again, general operations, not specific, and we take some money from foundations. So you have to just look at our work and see how it stands up, the test of, of empirical evidence, of factual basis, of lacking of what we would call in Washington, hackdom. <laughs> we think we're pretty good at avoiding that, and we think that's why our supporters like us. Now, other think tanks that have a different funding strategy that are very tied to a partisan outcome or a commitment to a partisan politician or, or to a a certain funding base that is driven, you know, you know, if, you, if you're rise, raising a lot of money from grassroots dollars, you might have to be very responsive to the, the demands of those grassroots dollars. But to clarify, just based on an earlier point, I might be misunderstanding. I thought you said around 80% is coming from you know, individual grassroots donations. It's not grassroots, though. What I meant is that if you're modeling, if, you're, if, you're, if your funding model depends on um, really extreme rhetoric in emails to millions of Americans every day, then you might have to feed whatever that community needs to hear. Our funding model is really directed at a really relatively small group of of people that are wealthy and are doing very well and have been very successful in American 
uh, capitalism, um, and they have an interest, but it's not a uniform interest. I mean, a lot of you know big shot capitalists who give to Democrats too. So, but we try to make it. We, well, the key ingredient is that there's no strings attached, and so we take the money and we spend it as we see fit. People decide over time they don't like the result of their work; they don't give to us anymore. Um, but the I absolutely believe that this collection of entities that play in this game. I used to be on the board of Child Trends, which is another think tank, and um, is a positive contributor to the public debate. Um, people have different ways of doing it, but it enhances the public debate. It doesn't detract from it. Um, and um, we, we try to preserve our independence and our objectivity by making it clear that our scholars speak for themselves, not for the House, and by being willing to hire people with an eclectic background and who challenge, you know. So on, on that note of your hiring practices, you say, you know, scholars have independence to pursue their own research projects and you hire people from both sides. So within your hiring practices, would I perhaps in the past or in the future, does your, does a commitment to the ideals of AEI of free trade, limited government, is that a prerequisite to be an AEI scholar or have you historically, or are you willing to hire scholars who may no? The, the, the underlying principles are pretty strong, and okay. it depends on your field. Um, but it, the underlying principles are, you know, somebody like Rui Teixeira who does public opinion and demography and sort of the, he's not in trade, he's not in economics. We're not asking him to tell us that he believes in, you know, free market uh, capitalism. Um, so it doesn't matter that he has other views that don't, because the work he's doing doesn't intersect in that. But we do look for people that see the world similarly to us. There's no question about that. And of course. we are we are um, we are nonpartisan, but we're not non-ideological. And and I want people representing that view. And frankly, I believe that in the universities and in the media and in our political discussion, there's an imbalance uh, where it's a little bit over dominated by a leftward perspective, and it needs us. To, especially in the world that I were operating in, which is poverty studies, there is it needs to have a, a, a different perspective brought to the competition of ideas. But yes, we definitely um, we look for people that see the world the way we do, um, uh, and then we hire them because they also do outstanding work. So in terms of um, recruiting people from different fields, um, so you hear the term culture wars today more than you ever do. Um, and I know that you have Yuval Levin as a scholar. Um, so what has the process been like of opening up a space on AEI, um, opening up space in AEI for um, looking at cultural issues and looking at broader social issues? Um, well, we've, we've put a big emphasis on that, on the aspects of American society that are upstream from politics and government, and Yuval has brought that with him uh, to AI and that perspective. Um, we, when you say cultural issues, we write about free speech, we write about the importance of the underlying institutions, we write about the Constitution, we do some writing about um, uh, family, we do quite a lot of writing about family and the importance of family and to active involved parents in every, every child's life. Um, we don't do a lot of writing about guns or abortion. Some people think of those as cultural issues. It's just not an area where we have expertise or a lot of interest. Um, but we do write about, and we do write about universities and the lack of um, viewpoint diversity on university campuses and a, and a concern about a disrespect for free speech on university campuses. So we're, we're big on that. We're a little bit concerned about the 
the, the diminishing importance of the humanities in kids' education and what it takes. So we've recruited these two wonderful husband and wife scholars from Furman University, Ben and Jenna Story, who wrote a wonderful book called Why We Are Restless. It's about young people and why they are struggling finding meaning in this world we live in. Um, so we do write about that, and we, we, we like that writing. Um, it's not as easy to translate into you know, a, a conversation with a congressman <laughs> or a governor, but it, it's important discussions that need to be had. So I, I want to hop onto that point of free speech, because I think the question of free speech on campus is incredibly interesting, because you know, on one hand, you have... Uh, to, like, it's almost as if there's too much free speech, there's no speech, in the sense that, uh, look, to clarify, if someone's speaking and then you have other voices who are protesting, there's perhaps a point where, you know, the protest is drowning at the speaker or, you know, the speech of disruption uh, prevents, you know, the, the kind of swap of ideals. So I'm curious because to say, you know, I'm for, you know, free speech, no restrictions, not to say that's what you're saying, isn't kind of hard to grapple with because then, you know, you have to also understand that protest politics would interfere with the kind of swap of ideas. So I'm curious, um, given your expertise in this area and the work AEI is doing, what is your model or what do you envision for what free speech on college campuses should look like? And should there be certain protections or restrictions or should we... I think that's a very good, very good point. Um, we are concerned about the, the, the effect of the heckler and the shutting down of free speech through the use of, of heckling or, or disturbing... The Which ability. someone says is... Form of speech. Yes, some would say that, but I agree with you that that's the form of speech that shuts free speech down. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I look at it, that's what I'm concerned about, is this inability to allow a space for people to have a time to talk through their ideas without being interrupted or disrupted with this kind of behavior, which has occurred in Middlebury and at Stanford Law School and in other places. And it's really unacceptable, and it's very anti what the purpose of a university was meant to be. The other is, and I do feel, um, because I've spent a lot of time on college campuses and, and have spoken on college campuses and observed college campuses, is that there is an imbalance in the number of uh, professors and of visitors to college campuses who represent viewpoints that are right of center. More often, it's left of center. I just think people should work harder to expand the opportunities of those viewpoints to be heard on campus. That's why I have this partnership with McCourt and Maria Kenshin. I didn't come to her. She came to me and said, we would like to increase the diversity of viewpoints on our campus because we know we have a problem. And I said, I think you do have a problem and we have some scholars that can help you with that. And so we're doing some various partnerships that will get our scholars more likely to be exposed to her students and to actually get their students to be more exposed to AI. So um, that's what I'm talking about. And um, the extent to which um, that, those values are not celebrated in just the way that you describe, um, it discourages us. And we think it's a worthy area of public policy discussion um, and, and of, of social commentary. And so we are engaged in it. But I'm curious then, in the realm of free speech, should we allow the floodgates to be open for all speech? especially when it comes to think, thinking in terms of what the university will platform, or should there be some restrictions? Um, in the sense, you know, I think you self-admittedly are a center-right thinker. Um, yeah. It seems pretty quiet, no protests, but it does seem that there, when certain thinkers come present certain viewpoints, and I'll give you an example, in the Georgetown context, and we're talking about trade, we're talking about um, free market economics, that seems to be 
a point of disagreement probably amongst you know many students at uh, Georgetown, but not worth deplatforming someone. But I would say you know a couple of months earlier, uh, Vice President Pence came to campus, and there was a series of protests from a variety of students, a lot of which are in the LGBTQ community, who feel their identity have been invalidated and attacked by the policies and beliefs of you know Vice President Pence. I mean, not, not the beliefs, but you know the policies he has pushed and enacted. So I'm curious, what is the kind of bright line which we would establish if there you believe there is a bright line? I, the whole phrase deplatforming is not one that I'm really comfortable with uh, in the politics and political discussion within the main guardrails of American politics, right to left. Um, and certainly, Vice President Pence operates in those guardrails. And so, yeah, that would I, I observed that his visit to campus. I think Georgetown handled it pretty well. I didn't really come over and check on it, but mm-hmm. I had students who told me they went. Um, there was a, a some disturbance, but it wasn't inappropriate or bad, and it didn't it didn't not allow him to get his viewpoint across. So I'm the whole concept of deplatforming or shutting people down who are within the broad confines of public discussion and have also a constituency. Now that doesn't mean there aren't some that are out of bounds, but um, is just not uh, I'm not comfortable with um, and. And, and the use, you might have noticed, and you all at Georgetown should see, that it was a big, I think it was at Stanford, the Stanford president just came out and rejected a proposed resolution on, on uh, allowing for triggering warnings. They just said triggering warnings are not consistent with the university. So that's a pretty strong statement. And I think that that's because people are realizing that some of this extreme rhetoric involving deplatforming, Triggering warnings are a threat to free speech and open discussion, and we don't want that. That's not a, that's not consistent with the real important values of a university. So, I mean, we can all make our examples. Of, you know, if there was, a, I, I I can see a university saying we don't accept or want a Nazi on campus making president. I can, I'm, I'm, don't disagree with that, <laughs> um, but that's not what Vice President Pence is, and it's not what. Most of it certainly wasn't what this federal judge at Stanford campus was. So, so I should also point out. I should also point out that those who engage in deplatforming need to be very clear, or need to be w- willing to stand up for what they're doing. Which means take their name down, have their photographs in the newspapers, and be re- be recorded that they're doing. The idea it reminds me of what Robert Kennedy used to say about people that didn't that objected to the draft. He said, if you object to the draft, object to the draft and take the consequences. But don't go hide and disappear and, and be anonymous. Stand up for what you believe in. And the idea, what I found really upsetting about some of this is that the idea that when a reporter, I used to be a campus journalist, would go and want to ask the people participating in this obstructive behavior, uh, shutting down the debate, they would say, well, they put a, fa- a, fa- a mask on. I don't want to be, I don't want to, well, then, 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 you're really, then you're really a coward. And so um, I absolutely, when I, was in, when I was in college, I wrote op-eds, I participated in public dialogues, I took difficult positions, all good, and I was willing to have my name on it, and so should these people. So I just want to have one more follow-up on this point of uh, conversation, then I'll give Julian the reins. Um, but you talk about the sort of bright line, obviously you no know Nazis, and you say that you're pretty comfortable with the bright line of the kind of confines of you know, mainstream American politics and the yeah. people who have constituencies but you know, with, with, even within that group, I'm thinking about not necessarily deplatforming, but whether the university ought to platform this person if they come to speak. Someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who you know, obviously not within the center of the confines, but was in the confines of people who have constituencies in 
American politics. And yeah, you know, I, like, listen, I am not a, at all a fan of Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene at all. And the university, for the university, it gets to make a a, a, a dis- discussion, a decision about who to bring. There's there's always you know there's always a decision about you know who should we seek, who should we bring, and that might lead to them saying, well, we'd rather not have Marjorie Taylor Greene, and that's fine. But student groups that decide on their own that they want someone to come, um, you know, then those students have to stand up for that. But I don't think other students should then prevent them from being able to hear that view. So it all depends. And what I what I also would say is that it's important to look at the the collection of speakers that come to campus and just sort of see was there a balance. It's not hard to find. It's not hard to get a balance. There are lots of right of center thinkers. I know them. I know a lot of them. I got plenty of them over at AI. And if there isn't a balance, then I think the university should ask itself, are we letting our students down? Not just our right of center students, but our left of center students who aren't being exposed to ideas that will make them better thinkers and better debaters and better participants in the public debate. So, yeah, I I mean, obviously there are decisions about who and who not to come. Those are allowed to be made. But if some group selects someone to come, you know, my I think the the, the 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 standard position should be let's make sure that happens in a peaceful and appropriate way and they're given their chance to speak. Especially considering um, the lack of balance, which does exist. So um Again, on that free speech point, um, on social media, um, censorship on social media is a big topic right now. So what steps do you think should be taken to um, create free competition of ideas on social media platforms Um, and whether you think um, legislation should address this? Um, I'm not an expert on that. It's not my body of work. And we have scholars at AI that are. Our predisposition is that... um, um, Section 230 is, works, and we should allow and encourage uh, the platforms to allow the greatest amount of free speech as possible, and restrictions on that are not good. Um, that doesn't mean that platforms shouldn't, within the confines of Section 230, be allowed to make some judgments about certain speech that is inappropriate or bad. Um, so I, you know, I come from the newspaper business world. I was a journalist. Journalists make decisions about what is and is not in their newspaper. Um, I don't think that's that's a you know shutting down of free speech, and I don't think it is in this case with with social media the media players. That's my my take on it. My view is there's lots of free speech in social media right now. It's not an, it's not a, it's not a situation where there's an absence of it. I want to transition to your specific interest area within welfare and your history within uh, New York. So. Um, for the viewers, you worked uh, for a while under, I believe, which administration was it? Oh, the Bloomberg right, administration. You worked uh, under Bloomberg uh, coordinating welfare policy. So I'm curious, being within having the actual levers of power within the sort of governing world, you know, kind of different than working inside the, the constraints of a think tank where you're, I don't want to say within the ivory tower, but you know, working much more with data and not necessarily, you know, the levers. I'm curious, how did that change your opinion or nuance your opinion of the workings of the welfare state and welfare policy, if it did? Well, I spent most of my career in the uh, social services system of New York State and New York City. I spent 20 years working for Governor Pataki and then, oh, sorry, 11 years working for Governor Pataki and then seven years working for Mike Bloomberg. Um, And I loved every minute of it because I was working in a system that touched a lot of New Yorkers. 
it touched them mostly in a positive way, but sometimes not in a positive way. And where it wasn't positive, I did a lot of work to see that we could make it more positive and more successful. Um, when I got there, the welfare system in New York State and New York City was uh, burdened by um, uh, an excessive federal oversight that also encouraged um, dependency and didn't do enough to help people get jobs. And we helped along with Bill Clinton and Mayor Giuliani and Mayor Bloomberg and Governor Pataki, we helped to move that more toward a, a work-based and work-focused social policy system. And it and I loved doing that. I'm a big believer in serving time in government and working and government can make a positive impact on people's lives. Certainly, the safety net in the United States, whether it's the earned income tax credit or food stamps or Medicaid, provide an enormous amount of help to people who struggle in the United States. And I was proud that the agencies that I worked for provided that aid, while at the same time talking to everybody who was receiving that aid about how important getting a job was if they were not working. If they're working, we wanted to help them stay in work. We wanted to help them supplement their wages with various supports. So you definitely have an insider perspective on welfare policy in New York City. So I'm just interested in your perspective on the welfare policies of um, Mayors Bloomberg, um, not Mayors Bloomberg, uh, Mayors de Blasio and currently uh, Mayor Adams um, right now. So I knew Bill de Blasio well. He was the chair of the committee that I reported to. And his view of the importance of work is not mine. And uh, thankfully, 20 years of the policies we had put in place were hard for, to, for him to completely undo. And the city had changed. Um, and the federal policy didn't change with him. So I don't think he was... I think the city is still stronger than it was in the years prior to uh, 1994, uh, but I think he undermined some of our commitment to work. I think his rates of getting people into jobs wasn't as strong as ours. And his cash assistance caseload rose. He didn't have the success in homelessness that he promised he would have. It's actually harder than he thought it was. And um, that was disappointing to me. But um, welfare policy in the United States is driven by a lot of forces, not just the mayor. So there's the governor, there's this federal policy, there's the bureaucracy that is sort of built to do a certain thing. There are the neighborhoods and communities, and then the families themselves. And all of those things, even under de Blasio, um, uh, encouraged work. And so I think labor force participation rates still remained uh, at the, close to the levels they were when we left, which I think was important. Um, but no, you know, you win some elections and you, you lose some elections, but... In a city like New York, to have 20 years of right-of-center governance in the mayor's office was pretty surprising, and the result of, I think, um, not very good governance prior to that. Let's talk federal policy then. Um, I believe the Farm Bill is coming up, which I think is going to be pretty huge for federal welfare policy. I'm curious, what do you expect to see, given the current composition of the legislator and the executive uh, coming up on the federal Farm Bill, and what would you as an intellectual working at AI, specializing in this topic, hope to see um, in your ideal world? So the, the reason the Farm Bill will have a large impact in social safety net policies because SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or food stamps, resides in the Farm Bill. Um, it, it is a big part of the safety net. It's not the only part of the safety net, but it's a significant one. And the problem with the SNAP program is twofold right now. One if you arrive at the desk, if you're sitting like you and I are across our desk, me, I'm the recipient or a person in need of aid, you're the caseworker, and I say to you, I need SNAP benefits, 
Um, you're going to say, well, let me hear a little bit about yourself, your family size, and are you working? And if I say I'm not working, you're going to say, fine, that's, we'll put your income down to zero, and you're going to calculate my SNAP budget, and you're going to give me the card that allows me to afford groceries that gives me about $200 or $250 or $300 a month in, in groceries, and you're going to say nothing more about my work status. You're not going to ask me, can I help you get a job? Uh, you're not going to tell me that there's a training program down the street that I should maybe take advantage of. You're not going to do anything with regard to helping me get employment when the fact is my absence of being employed is part of the reason why I need food stamps to begin with. I have no earnings in the household. That, I think, is terrible. I think it's a lost opportunity to help people uh, improve their lives and improve their incomes and help their families get out of poverty. Um, and so I'm hoping that in the Farm Bill, some direction is given to the states and administrators of the program, because this is where it happens, to pay attention to work. We often talk about work requirements on the recipient, and I believe in those. But in this case, what I really want is a work expectation or requirement on the agency to at least care about employment and to not just sort of say, fine, when someone says, I need the highest food stamp allotment budget because I have no earnings, especially at a time when there are way more jobs available than there are, are people seeking jobs. So I'm really hopeful that they do that. I think you should know that when the federal government or Congress gives a direction of that kind in a program of that size and that significance, the state and localities will pay attention and they will take work into account when they're across the table from a non-working recipient. So that's one thing I hope happens. Uh, the fact that the Republicans have the House gives some sign that they might be able to get something. Certainly President Biden will not support that. Um, he views food stamps as a straight entitlement and don't, no hassle, no discussion. Here's your card. See you in a year, which in my opinion is harmful to people. Um, but that's their mentality. So that debate will take place. I hope that there will be some acknowledgement that employment is important for, for these families. Um, the second is, while it's called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, it really does very little to enhance the nutrition or the nutrition quality of the people who receive food stamps. In fact, low-income, equally low-income families who receive food stamps versus those who don't receive food stamps are much more likely to have a very unhealthy diet and to purchase products that are not healthy for them, including sugar and sweetened beverages, which are the leading cause of, type, of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Obesity is a very significant health problem in America that we aren't doing enough about. I would like to see the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program make some effort to encourage better uh, nutritional practices and habits by recipients of food stamp benefits. And one way you do that is you say, if it's your own money, you can buy whatever you want. But if you're going to use our government assistance money, our debit card, to buy groceries, we're going to say that while you know and you can't buy paper or cigarettes or beer with it, we're going to add one more thing to the things, the list of things you can't buy, and that is sugar and sweetened beverages, which have this very negative impact on, on diet and um, obesity. I'd like to see them at least try that or direct a state to experiment it. Uh, because I think it might lead to lower childhood obesity rates uh, for poor children in poor communities. But, but uh, you know, that'll be another battle because the interests in that discussion will be very much weighted toward um, the, the food companies 
that want to make sure that their uh, food stamp benefits can go for anything that the recipients want. And that's unfortunate. Um, but the fact is, children on SNAP are more likely to be obese and more likely to have longer-term health consequences as a result of that um, than they should be and then other poor children are who are not on SNAP. And we should do something about that when we call the program a nutrition assistance program. I would just say 10% of a very large number of food stamp um, um, uh, spending goes for these products. So it's not like it's a small thing. Um, and just the messaging of it, hey, you know, these just like these other products, you can't buy this product, would send a message to families about the government's view of what is in their best nutrition um, uh, interest. So I think with that, we can move on to our lightning round. So what news sources do you read on the daily? On the daily? On the daily. Uh, if I, in the morning, I read the Journal, the Times, the New York Post, the Washington Post. Um, I read Politico. You read it all. <laughs> I read a lot, and you all should too. I mean, I, when I was your age, I read four papers every morning before 8.30. And they were different perspectives. Um, so, yeah, I read. Those are what I read. And I also have a very bad habit. At least two of them I read in hard copy because I'm old-fashioned. No, hard copy's better. I'm with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. I get my economist in a hard copy. There you <laughs> go. You won't see the whole paper if you don't get the whole paper. If you're reading it online, you only see the things you're interested in. That's bad because sometimes there are little gems that you find. So you spent a lot of time in D.C. and in New York. Yeah. What's your favorite city? New York. I'm a Brooklyn boy. I grew up in Brooklyn. I raised my children in Brooklyn. I'm much more comfortable in Brooklyn. I used to say that in, New in Washington, you could be walking around the city for weeks, and then you'd get on the train and go to Amtrak up to New York. you get a Penn Station, and within 30 seconds, you'd see more different kinds of faces than you saw in three weeks in Washington, D.C. Um, I also... Uh, in New York, in Washington, everybody relates themselves to the President of the United States. So, <laughs> you know, you're, you're 500, I'm, you know, 450, and presence one in New York, everybody thinks they're one. And I like that better. <laughs> so you played on Princeton Tigers basketball green team, a practice squad that didn't dress for games. Um, so that said, um, do you have any favorite memories from your time um, with Princeton basketball? Oh, I have a lot. And I was a scrub JV player. I did dress for a couple games, but it was very rare. And I was part of this team that Coach Krill liked to use to sort of play defense. We didn't really get to touch the ball. But, um, so I, you know, Coach Grill was a great coach. Um, I guarded Stevie Mills a lot. Stevie Mills was an outstanding, you know, star basketball player. And I, I loved doing that. Um, but uh, we won a few games when I was deep on the bench or not dressing. And that was nice. And we also, you know, one year we had a very difficult year. That was no fun. Um, but just being part of um, something that... Uh, uh, was athletic and fun and had, you know, a good group of guys. Uh, I loved all of that. Well, that concludes our time on the podcast. Thanks very much. I hope you, I hope you it so all worked out. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kelvin Doe, Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. 
Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes. Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.